Father, thank you for this new day. Thank you for being here at this camp meeting. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us this morning as we look into your word and impress the truth upon our minds and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to say something else, too, that's not in my notes, but it really is motivated by a little discussion we had uh, here before all of you arrived. And uh, we were talking about the fact that, and I said that I believe that God raised up the Advent movement in the mid-19th century because he knew what was coming. In other words, there's a purpose for this denomination to be here. And we call our church the Remnant Church based on Scripture. And you know what a remnant is. It's the last piece of cloth on a bolt of cloth. Well, the last piece is identical to the first piece, which means that the, the remnant church is supposed to be identical to the apostolic church. In other words, we represent the truth as it was presented by the apostles. Unchangeable. And that's what's needed today. Now, I want to read you a couple of passages from 2 Timothy, if you want to open your Bibles, because it fits into the context of what we've been doing this week. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Beginning with the first verse. But understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people, and I have a sermon on this text that I call, People Are the Problem. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. That is to say you can't satisfy them no matter what you do, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and so on. Wow! Put that as a grid on today's world. And then look at chapter 4, beginning with the first verse. And this passage was read at both of my ordinations, uh, into the Lutheran Church and into the Adventist Church. It's the same text. And in Michigan, at least, it's read at every ordination service. I charge you, he's writing to Timothy, Paul is... I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, when things are going good or when things are going bad, be ready to preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort 
with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Why does he say endure suffering? Because if you preach the word, you'll get into trouble. Because the world doesn't like God's word. And I, I, I like to ask young preachers, young ministers, it says to reprove and rebuke. What happens when you rebuke? You get into trouble, you know. But the secret is, and I, when I taught preaching at the seminary, I always emphasize this. It's not the preacher that does the rebuking. It's the word that does it. He says, preach the word. And it's the word that reproves and rebukes and exhorts. But the preacher has to preach the word in love, not in a condemnatory way, but in an appealing way. Okay. Turn back to 1 John. <clears throat> John is a fascinating person. He is a stirring example of one of, of one whose whole personality and character has been transformed by a close relationship with Jesus. And the Gospel of Mark tells us that when Jesus appointed the 12 apostles, he called Simon Peter, which means rock. And he called the two brothers, James and John, sons of thunder. That's found in Mark 3, verse 17. And apparently those two brothers lived up to their nickname. John was zealous and ambitious. He was an opinionated debater. He was at some times a bit reckless and impetuous and even intolerant. And he was argumentative even. But as he matured in the faith, he mellowed and became tender-hearted. And that's what's supposed to happen to us. Exactly what should happen to every one of us as we grow in Christ. John became the kind of man 
that I would love to have as a friend. I, I suppose that's why he appeals to me. I don't know. <laughs> but I've always... Had, I, I've, his gospel and his epistles have always been a favorite of mine. A anyway, John, he fit Paul's description of a mature believer. As Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, one who quote, speaking the truth in love, grows up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Now, if you hear anybody say that headship is a new idea among Adventists, That's nonsense. It's in the Bible. Headship is in the Bible. We just read it. Grow up in every way into him who is the head. Christ is the head of the church. And so this son of thunder became known as the Apostle of Love. Why then doesn't the Apostle of Love begin his letter by talking about love? Actually, he does. Though we may not think so at first. Because John knew that to love Jesus is to love his word. And to love his word is to love Jesus. The two cannot be separated from each other. And in his gospel, chapter 14, verses, verse 23, he quotes Jesus. As saying, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so John begins this letter about, instead of talking about love, he's, he begins by talking about walking in the light of truth. and not walking in, the, in darkness. He talks about confessing sin. About forgiveness. 
about being cleansed from all unrighteousness. He, talk, he talks about self-deception. He talks about keeping the commandments as the evidence of knowing the Father and the Son. That's how he starts this letter. He talks about walking in the same way that Jesus walked. In other words, he's talking about the, the transformed life. And when John wrote the second chapter, first uh, verses 3 through 6, and let's read those. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. When he wrote those words, he must have remembered an event that occurred many years before that when an angel had come and let him and Peter and, and the other apostles out of prison. They were put in prison by the high priest, the Jewish high priest, and the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish priestly court, because they had been preaching the gospel. and winning many, many people to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And he must have remembered those brave words of Peter and the other apostles when, as they spoke to those religious political leaders. Now, let's turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. As, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. They said to the religious authorities. John was there. He was one of them. He heard it. He saw it. He participated. How could he forget it? After, after then, they were severely beaten. Then they were charged. In verse 40, it says, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them 
not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. And what did they do? First of all, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And then, incredibly, verse 42, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. In other words, they were not intimidated. by the religious authorities. They practiced what they preached. And what they preached was to obey God, not men. And they practiced that. They lived that. The word of God is the highest authority. Not high priests, not the Sanhedrin, not church councils, not popes or other religious leaders, not ecclesiastical pronouncements not sociological studies, not culture, not human traditions, and not, certainly not articulate scholars. By the way, the, the Lutheran church that I was a part of Let me see, I got to recall this. Huh? They were doing a study on gender, and they established a commission that worked for a number of years to come up with a statement. My memory is failing me. Oh, yes. And it was not a biblical study. It was a sociological study. Now, I don't know what would have happened to me if I had not, if the Lord had not intervened in my life and brought me into the remnant church. I would have a real problem today with that kind of thinking on the part of the church. And those kind of events that John participated in such indelible memories must have had a, 
a profound effect on the way he thought about the faith. In other words, his developing theology. And also about how he lived the life of a follower of Christ. Lifestyle. You know, there, there are Protestants out there think Adventists are nuts. You know, because we practice healthful living. We abstain from certain foods. And they think we're crazy. I used to love pork chops. I don't eat them anymore. Why? Because of what the Word says. Not because of what the church says, but what the Word says. And what's wrong with healthful living anyway? <laughs> what's wrong with abstaining from alcoholic beverages and, and, and drugs and, and, and uh, tobacco? Come on. Who's nuts? <laughs> anyway, John does not equivocate. His thinking is clear, it's not fuzzy. He's not ruled by sentiment, but by truth. He doesn't vacillate. You know, thinkers of our day do not like absolutes. And many atheists say there's no, there's no absolute. And they say that absolutely. And they say that absolutely, that's right. But John does. Like absolutes. He doesn't hesitate to make clear distinctions between light and darkness, faith and faithlessness, sin and righteousness, the true and the false. How do we know the difference? Study of the word, that's what. That's the absolute. <laughs> to follow the word of God is called faithfulness. And his logic is relentless. And he draws an unmistakable line, and that's why I like John. His gospel has always been my favorite. And drawing lines like that is certainly not popular today. Today, it's fashionable to ignore lines. People don't like the Ten Commandments because they're, they are restrictive. Today it's fashionable to ignore these lines, these absolutes, to bend them and ultimately erase them. 
and brave people like John are rarely appreciated by the less brave. They think that, that he's stupid or a, a grumpy old man. That's me. I'm a grumpy old man. <laughs> now, if the church of the last hour is incapable, as John says, of distinguishing between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, 1 John 4, verse 6, it will not be prepared to meet the demands that are required in fulfilling its mission in the last hour. We have to be able to distinguish truth from error. And there's only one way to do that, and that's study the Word. What does the Bible say? So, as we let's continue our study of 1 John. As the Holy Spirit, by means of this Word of God, prepares His church to meet those demands. Remembering that to be forewarned is to be forearmed. So, open your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. We'll begin with verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And then down to verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now he begins to talk specifically about love. And he introduces this section with the salutation, Beloved. He uses beloved and little children interchangeably in chapters 2 and 3 
but he uses beloved exclusively in chapter 4. It's a term of endearment. It means adored, cherished, treasured. And it takes a guy like John to use words like this. And, you know, we really don't expect it. Because, after all, he's a man and men don't talk like that. It might even make some of us men uneasy. Especially if we find it difficult to express feelings. I remember when I was 17, my mother died of a brain tumor. And I had an awful hard time at the funeral. We were sitting in the funeral home right in front of the, her casket. And he said to me, men don't cry. Really? And you know, as you get older, you begin thinking about the past. And you remember things. My father was never an affectionate man. He, he never hugged me. And he never told me he loved me. But as the years went by, I, I knew he cared about me. He did things that he indicated that he cared. But he could never express that. And I remember the last time I saw him, as I was walking out the door, I stopped and I turned and, and I said, I love you, Pa. I, I could never call him Dad or Daddy. I said, I love you, Pa. And his response was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had a sermon on that. Strong Tower Radio made broadcast it. I don't know. Anyway, uh, <coughs> some men, some, this expressing feelings might might make some of us uneasy, especially if we find it difficult to express our feelings. Yes. It wasn't your dad, it was the age in which your dad grew up. My dad never said he loved me either. But oh. as a young man, I saw a friend of mine hugging his children and, and just loving them. And I looked at it and it was beautiful, but it had never happened to me. And I determined I would love my children in that way. So. Uh, well, I, well, I don't have time to get into it, but I think you're probably right. <clears throat> but in my, my father's case, he was an angry man because of things that had happened in his life prior to that, that I didn't, re didn't realize or that I learned later. When I became a Christian, the Holy Spirit opened my mind to understand my father.
So I hold nothing against him. Anyway, John doesn't hesitate to share his feelings. And why not? The, the fact that he uses the word truth at least 13 times and love at least 37 times ought to help us understand why. He makes it undeniably clear that truth must always be presented in the context of love. Love is the motivation for truth. Nothing else is what motivates and prepares the church to meet the mission demands of the last hour. John couldn't help but do something about it, in other words. In fact, God had to do something about it. Why? Because it is his nature to do so. God could do no other but send his only begotten son into the world that he loved. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God loved the whole world. And he did something about it. And John said it like no other New Testament writer in just three words. God is love. 1 John 4, 8. God so loved the fallen world that he did something about it. And his church, the body of Christ, as his messenger of redemption, must so love the fallen world that it does something about it. And in this letter, John tells the church of the last hour what that something is. This is precisely why we have evangelists and Bible workers and amazing facts and it is written and, and secrets unsealed and every, and 3ABN. This is why we have this. This is why we sacrifice our means to, to support these ministries. Because our church is doing something about it. And overall, it is, what, what we do is to stake uncompromisingly true to the word. And that is what energizes the church to fulfill its mission. John says in chapter 2, verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. In other words, we, we're, we should be determined to tell the truth about the truth. To walk in the light as he is in the light. Not compromising the truth. Not bend it to accommodate culture. 
not abandon it for whatever other reason. Many of our sister churches out there, denominations are, have adopted evolution as opposed to Bible creation. That's what happened back in the 1960s as when I was a young Lutheran minister in Bessemer. And my wife was the superintendent of the Vacation Bible School for that year and she got the materials and she opened the, the cartons and looked through it and then she came to me and she said, we can't teach this. This is not, this is not creation, this is evolution. And I looked at it and sure enough, I packed it all back, sent it back, sent a letter and told them why. And believe it or not, the Seventh-day Adventist church in Ironwood, the church I pastor now, they had a vacation Bible school that summer and their emphasis was on creation. They had, and my uh, Mrs. Bigford, my wife's friend, showed her the material So it already started in the mid-60s. And it's still going on. Pardon? That was 120 years after 1840. Say that again, I didn't hear. You got the 1840s, that's 120 years after, just like in Noah. Yeah. Noah was 120 years old. All right. So it's only oh by the way, that abandonment of creation with evolution was followed by same sex marriage. And it's continued. But it's only when we walk in the light that we are guaranteed fellowship with one another. And the assurance that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, I remember distinctly a meeting of Lutheran pastors in that area. And I don't remember the subject that we were talking about. But I felt inclined to defend the authority of Scripture. And one of the young pastors who was a recent graduate of the same seminary that I had attended, <clears throat> he came up to me and very vehemently put his finger in my face. It was almost touching my nose. And he said, the day is coming when people like you will not be allowed in the, in the Lutheran ministry. And it was not long after that that my wife met Mrs. Bigford. And things started to happen. It wasn't easy, as I mentioned. I resisted, yes. But what would have happened to me if the Lord had not intervened in that kind of a way? I couldn't have stayed in that church. I could not. Where would I have gone? What would I have done?
It's only when we walk in the light that we are guaranteed fellowship one with, the, with one another. How could I have fellowship with that young pastor or people like him? John says, chapter 2, verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And his, in his third little letter, verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. No compromise, no deviation, faithful. And so he says, in verse 7, chapter 2, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old one that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. There's no suggestion that what he is saying replaces the word that they, had, that they had already heard from God. That's the point he's making. What he's saying when he says, I'm writing you no new command, but the old was from the beginning. He's saying that what I'm saying does not replace the word that they had already heard. And when he uses the term old, he doesn't mean that it was inadequate, antiquated, unable, impotent, or ineffective. He means that it is long-standing. It has existed for a long time. It's venerable. It's well-advanced. It's priceless. The transmission of the Word of God, the commandment, is an unbroken chain of divine revelation. And having made that point of connection between the old commandment and the new, he then says, chapter 2, verse 8, at the same time it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, that is in God, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. It's not new in the sense that it cancels and takes the place of the old. But new, it's new in the sense of a fresh start on the part of God's people. It's a new beginning. And verse 9 helps us to understand what is new. It says, what is new is the spiritual quality of the old that had been lost in accumulated religious traditions. Truth is only credible when it is demonstrated by love. That's the whole point of what John is trying to make. In practice, they go hand in hand, truth and love. He says in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, 
Whoever says he is in the light of God's truth and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. And then he also says in chapter 3, verse 11, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And again, in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then, chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And again, in chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. But remember, love and truth go together. You can't separate them. We tell the truth because we love. We tell God's truth because we love. Just like God does. He loved the whole world, so he did something about it. He sent his son. And it works like this. To walk in the light, abide in the light, is to walk in love. God's truth must be practiced by his people if their witness is to have any redeeming effect. Why do you think a lot of these churches that have been compromising on sola scriptura are losing members? Their witness has no credibility because they are denying, they have denied his truth. And it works like this. If you love the Lord, you will love his truth. If you love his truth, you will love the Lord. If you love the Lord and his truth, you will love your brothers as he does and share his truth with them so that they can find salvation. And that's exactly why we do what we do. I don't know of any church, do you, that has ministries like Amazing Facts and Secrets Unsealed and Voice of Prophecy and It Is Written? I don't know. 3ABN? That has camp meetings like this. When I began as a Lutheran, we used to have Bible camps. They were called Bible camps. Now they're not called Bible camps. They're called Lutheran camps. And every time we drive from our house to Camp Segola, we go through Crystal Falls and we drive by Fortune Lake. And that's precisely where I had that conversation with that woman that I told you about on Monday who didn't have the assurance of salvation, of, of the forgiveness of sin. 
And on the sign there, it doesn't say Lutheran Bible Camp. It says Lutheran Camp. And then underneath there, it says Folk Dancing. And it gives you the day and the times. It would have been unthinkable back then. But now, that's what they do. I just love this camp meeting. I hate to think that I'm not going to be able to come. And on 90, I'm walking funny and, <laughs> you know, everything is getting harder to do. But I love, I love camp meeting. I've, I've been doing this for years now. That's just the way it is. And so if the church of the last hour is going to be prepared to meet the demands of the last hour mission, it cannot love the world. That's what Paul, uh, John says. We cannot love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that sounds contradictory, doesn't it? Love your brothers, love people, but not love the world. It sounds contradictory. We've been talking about the church loving the fallen world like God loves it and doing something about it. Now he says not to love the world, but he draws an unequivocal line. He says in chapter 2, verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. World here refers to those things that are hostile to God and to take the church away from him. And then he tells us what he means by the things in the world, the desires of the flesh, lust, the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions. Anyone in whom the word of God abides knows what John is talking about without having to go into all kinds of details. Talk about how serious this is for the end time church, for the, for the last hour church, for the remnant church. You know, if we follow the contemporary trends, we're not going to be able to refer, our, to refer to this church as the remnant anymore. That term will eventually, will eventually disappear. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.